Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this evening. Thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you in advance, Lord, for your Holy Spirit showing up tonight and guiding each one of us, opening our hearts and our ears to receive whatever words you have in store for us. And so we pray, Lord, as we dive into the words of sacred scripture, which are sometimes confusing, complex, difficult to understand, or challenging, we pray, Lord, that you would Make them real, soften them to our ears and our hearts, and help us to understand them in a way that is not just uh, understanding what you meant 2,000 years ago, but understanding how you were speaking to each one of us tonight. And so we pray, Jesus, that we would have hearts, ears, minds that are open and ready to receive, and that you would allow us this time to be completely focused on you. We ask that you take away any distractions, any worries that we may have, Lord, and we just lay them all at your feet during this time. We ask that you bless this next hour and allow it to be fruitful in whatever ways you're desiring to bless each one of us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow, that was like a multiplication of loaves. I opened my eyes and we're like doubled in size. That was amazing. Um, beautiful. So, welcome. We are in Luke chapter 21, verse 5 is where we're starting. Luke 21, 5. And we're going to go from verse 5 to verse 19. A little bit longer of a section this evening. This is the gospel for this Sunday, which is the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. We're almost at the end of the liturgical year, the church year, and we will shortly be celebrating the Feast of Christ the King, which is the end of the liturgical year, and we'll start a new liturgical year with the first Sunday of Advent in subsequent weeks. So this Sunday, in this Sunday's readings, and especially in the following Sunday's readings, the Feast of Christ the King, you're going to hear a lot of what's called eschatological language and readings. Eschatological means has to do with the end times, has to do with the eschaton, which is the final times or the final events. Uh, and so that's what a lot of this language is about. So it's going to sound very apocalyptic, uh, very kind of sometimes doom and gloom, fire and brimstone-y, but it's not to scare us. It's to uh, help encourage those who are listening that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty and darkness, God is there. God is victorious. He is with us. And so have that kind of thought in your mind as we're reading through this. The context here is a little bit after Jesus has been questioned, our last Sunday's gospel. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the temple area, his final week of life. It's in the events of Holy Week. And um, he's giving this final, his final discourse, his final teaching publicly. And in every gospel, in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and here in Luke 21, we have this kind of mini apocalypse at the end of his teaching uh, time in his public ministry. So that's where he is. That's what he's doing. In front of the temple area, giving his final teaching in the last week of his life, um, kind of telling people after all the things that he has prophesied will happen, what are they to expect after that and how are they to be prepared? So with all that being said, we're going to read Luke 21, starting in verse 5 all the way to verse 19. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Picture Jesus here with crowds, in the temple area. 
While some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Then they asked him, teacher, when will this happen? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? Jesus answered, see that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for such things must happen first. But it will not immediately be the end. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be sights and mighty signs. Sorry, there will be powerful earthquakes, famines, and plagues from place to place. And awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. Before all this happens, however, they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and to prisons. And they will have you led before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to your giving testimony. Remember, you are not to prepare your defense beforehand. For I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. You will even be handed over by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will be destroyed. By your perseverance, you will secure your lives. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. If you're just joining us, we're in Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. There are Bibles over here. We're going to read that one more time through, now that you get a picture for what Jesus is saying here, these final warnings and um, kind of commissions to be prepared in times of persecution. Now I invite you to listen a little more deeply, see if there's a particular word or phrase that stands out to you for any reason. It doesn't need to be to interpret the passage and to know theologically or intellectually what the passage is talking about. Maybe just a word strikes you personally for some reason. Pay attention to what that particular thing is or those details, because that is how the Lord is, uh, I believe, desiring to speak to each one of us. And so reflect on those things, circle them, underline them, but most importantly, reflect on them and ask, God, what are you saying to me through this? Why is this standing out? What are you trying to say to me uh, through this or compel me to do? So this is our second and final time through Luke 21, verses 5 through 19. While some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Then they asked him, teacher, when will this happen? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? Jesus answered, See that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For such things must happen first, but it will not immediately be the end. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines, and plagues from place to place, and awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. Before all this happens, however, 
they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and to prisons, and they will have you led before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to your giving testimony. Remember, you are not to prepare your defense beforehand. For I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. You will even be handed over by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Not a hair on your head will be destroyed. By your perseverance, you will secure your lives. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, reflect back on that passage, particularly identifying the things that stood out to you. And then we're going to take some time sharing at our tables. If you're at a sparser table or on your own, feel free to join another table if you like. And we'll spend about five or ten minutes doing that. Uh, there's plenty of room up here at the tables in the front as well. There's spare chairs. So, um, But we'll spend about five or ten minutes doing that. If you're watching this later or listening, feel free to share that in comments. But for those of us here, we're going to take about ten minutes to do that at our tables, and then we'll bring it back together for discussion and questions. So share those questions and reflections at your table, and then I'll call you back. What are some things that are standing out, resonating with you in this? Even if it's just a word you want to share, or uh, as well as any questions you have about this passage. Yeah. Joni, all the way in the back. Yes. <laughs> what was your question? Oh, the word stood out to you was insur insurrection. Interesting. Anyone else, that word stand out to them? Reminiscent of things maybe going on in current culture or in the last several hundred years? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, how much of this is applicable to the upcoming Roman persecution to the Christians at this time? Yes. And how much of this is, is end times of the world? That is a great question. And the answer to that is yes. So the thing about biblical prophecy, this is true in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament, is there is usually an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy and a long-term future fulfillment of that prophecy. You see this in a lot of the messianic prophecies about Jesus, that a lot of them you can also apply to Old Testament heroic figures that happen in that generation when that, pro that prophecy is made, but then they uncannily also describe Jesus in even more detail sometimes. So there's always, in most prophecies, there's an immediate fulfillment and then a long-term fulfillment. And so in here, in these eschatological discourses, these mini apocalypses that we find in each of these synoptic gospels, Jesus is talking directly to the apostles, most likely about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem by Rome, which happens in the year 70, again, within that next generation. Those people who heard this, many of them would have been alive to have remembered the words of Jesus or to have seen that event take place. However, a lot of the general details about this also coincide with specific prophecies Jesus makes about the end times or even Old Testament prophecies that we have about the end times, like such as things from Ezekiel and Daniel. So the, the answer is kind of like a both and. You know, we know a lot of these things um, historically happened uh, when Rome came over and decimated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in the year 70. Uh, and this was written before that happened. So this wasn't like Luke writing after the fact, like, oh, we'll just record this down and make Jesus sound really good because all this stuff happened. Or No, it was, we know that this was recorded, uh, written beforehand. Uh, probably somewhere between the year six, 65 or 
Someone you, between the year 65 and 68 is some of the best dating for the Gospel of Luke. Um, so both. Yeah, Greg. I think it's very interesting as Barner says, he talks about the fact that people will be persecuted in his name. He says, it will lead to you giving testimony. Mm-hmm. Remember, you are not to prepare your defense beforehand, for I myself should give you a wisdom in speaking. Mm-hmm. And that's totally against my brain. Sure. And some of those people, if you see something coming on, you won't be prepared to deal with it. Yeah. So you don't you don't just sit there in silence and sound stupid or say something simplistic. Yeah. You won't be prepared. So Jesus, well, don't do that, but yeah. it's tough. tough yeah, thing. do not prepare a testimony. That's a hard thing to I mean, imagine like Let's take this on a small scale. Like you got like a, a red light camera ticket in the mail. I'm not saying this has happened to me, not using this personal example. But let's pretend many years ago this happened and I was trying to dispute it. I'm going to go, I'm going to make every preparation in case that I can for myself to go in prepared and to imagine Jesus be like, ah, oh, just like, just trust that I got you. Just show up. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I need pictures, I need evidence, I need proof. I lost, by the way. Um, yeah, was not successful. So, um, but, you know, that, yeah, it's very counterintuitive to us because we like to be in control, right? We like to know what's going on, which is why their first response when Jesus is saying all this bad stuff is going to happen, what do they say? They say, teacher, when will this happen and what sign? How are we going to know? How can we be ready and prepared? And notice that Jesus diverts it not to readiness for the event of what's going to happen. He diverts it to an internal readiness to face the persecution that will come with it. And that's an important thing to notice because they're concerned about like, all right, how do we make sure like we get out okay? How do we make sure like we're in control of the situation? And Jesus is like, okay, you're not, you're not going to know, but recognize there's something more important here that you're going to need to be ready for. More important that you're going to need to be ready for. And that's a note from this gospel and a lot of apocalyptic passages about scripture that we can really take for our own purposes. We can really apply that to our own life. Like how worried are we about Okay, I need to just have a grasp on everything in my life. Like, I need to have everything in order. I need to know when things are going to happen. And I don't want to be surprised by anything. And then we don't focus on the thing that really matters in the midst of all that, which is the the quality of our soul, the state of our soul. Are we really prepared spiritually to welcome Jesus? Are we prepared to allow him to stand with us and trust that he's standing with us in moments of darkness and difficulty, suffering, loss, and grief, which will assuredly come in our lives. You know, it's a guarantee that will happen. And that, that I think, is a, a bigger challenge, which is why Jesus deepens it. You know, he kind of passes off. You know, he's like, you know, there'll be some stuff, but that's not going to be it. You know, very unsatisfying answer, because as often happens, the disciples are worried about something that isn't the thing to be worried about. The same thing is true for all of us, right? We're often worried about things that we don't need to worry about. And I always say, you know, the phrase from Pastor Rick Warren, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, always remember what the main thing is. Worry about that. Worry about your salvation. Like, dude, that's a great thing to worry about. Like, be on it, you know? Don't be super scrupulous about it. Like, you you know, like, if I step on a crack, I'm going to, you know, break my salvation's back or whatever. I don't know what the Catholic version of that would be, you know, but like, but, but worry about that in the sense that, like, I need to put effort in that. I need to make sure that I am constantly, you know, aware of that. Um, it's interesting. I, I came across a quote recently, and I can't, I'm not going to be able to remember it accurately, but it had something to do with um, the more people are close to holiness, the more it seems that they tend to worry about their sin. 
Like, it's just interesting that like they, they are focusing more on like, oh man, I just really don't feel worthy. I really don't feel worthy. I feel like, I feel like I'm messing up. The holier and holier they get. And I've been reading um, Spiritual Direction from Padre Pio from his writings. I don't know if you've seen this book, but it's Spiritual Direction for Every Day of the Year. And I've been reading that this year. And in his letters to his spiritual directors and to people he's encouraging, he is hard on himself. Like the reading for today was just like, I'm like surrounded by darkness and I feel like I am totally messing up. But even in the midst of that, I'm just going to keep going through the motions because I know God at least likes that. I'm just like, dude, like you're incorrupt and you like levitated. and Like you had the wounds of Jesus. And he's like, man, I'm really sucking at the spiritual journey. And I'm just like reading this, like there's no hope for me. You know, like I feel like so not on that level, you know, but it's true. Like the more we, we become saintly, the more that we become holy, the more we have an awareness of that internal readiness that we need. And then sin just becomes that much more obvious in our life. We become that much more focused on it in a way that's not like I'm bad, but it's just like, I need to get this out of my life. I need to focus on the right thing. I need to keep the main thing, the main thing. So yeah, it's just, it's a mind blow to read that stuff from him. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Lynn. Um, I was just over here. How do you, we discussed it at the table. How do you know when someone says, I am he? And, and maybe it's a person that doesn't have the image that you think they should have. Hmm. Maybe it's some, uh, some scroungy kid or something. I mean, may, or, I mean, just maybe it's some, somebody that you just don't think, uh, and, our team said, you will know when you, you'll just know. But I don't know that I would know. I'm not sure. I mean, I... Are you talking like if Jesus were to reveal himself yes, to you or something? Yes, okay, okay, yes, okay. Like the second oh, sure. He says, I am he. Yeah. And follow me. Mm-hmm. And I would have to say, anyone who would say that to me, I would have to seriously think maybe it's him. Sure, yeah. And well, then, how would I know? That's gotcha. So I get what you're asking. So in terms of the second coming... We are, we are all going to know because it's, it's not going to be the way it was the first coming. It's not going to be like, did you guys hear there's like a, a baby being born somewhere and there's all these prophecies? Like, no, the Bible says like, it's going to be fire and clouds in the sky with armies of angels. And like, everybody's going to know, like things are going to be so backwards, upside down, pure chaos and light and, and all of that. Like, it's going to be like, imagine just heaven cracking open and spilling into earth, like, so we're just, we're not going to be like, is this it? Like, I'm not, have I seen this before? You know, it's no, like we're going to know, you know, what he's talking about here is people coming forward and saying, I am the Messiah. As if they are saying like, I've come back or I am the reincarnation of Jesus or I am just the Jewish Messiah and Jesus wasn't. And we know that this happens because they list in Acts chapter four and, and Acts chapter five, false messiahs that have come about. Um, in fact, I think it's, I think it's the, the, uh, the rabbi Gamaliel and they they have this council. I might have this wrong, but so Peter and John get arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin because they're preaching about Jesus. Okay. And, and they don't like that because they're preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so Gamaliel is a very wise rabbi. He taught Paul, but when he was Saul, uh, so he's very, very wise. And he tells them like, look, we've had messiahs in the past and he names a few of them. He names like two or three of them, messiahs that had big followings. And he says, they even, some of them even, you know, thought maybe they would rise from the dead. But when they died, their followers dispersed. And he's saying, you know, so if Jesus is really dead, we have to wait this thing out. 
And if they're not dispersing, there's something different about this. I'm paraphrasing very much, but that's basically what he says. So we know that other people had been pretending or trying to put on that moniker of being the Messiah. And we know that more even came later. Uh, there's one in Acts chapter 21, an Egyptian Messiah who had about 4,000 disciples. Uh, and then in Acts chapter 4, there's Judas the Galilean and Theudas, um, other different people who claim to be the Messiah. So I think that's what he's referencing. And that does happen before the destruction of Jerusalem. These people show up claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be bringing fulfillment, be promising the you know, reunification of the tribes of Israel, the glory days of, of Judaism back like they were in the t times of the Old Testament. And uh, when they die and when they, you know, get quashed by the Jewish leadership, just like Jesus did, their followers just disappear. So, okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So when the second coming happens, you will know. But you want to make sure you're ready when you know, because there ain't going to be time to run to confession. So that's the whole point of these warnings that we hear. It's like, be ready. You ready? You recognize the worry needs to be in our interior spiritual life. Don't worry about the external signs. It will be obvious. It will be obvious. Um, you know, laws of physics are breaking left and right, like things that we could not even imagine happening. It, it won't be a subtle baby born in a manger, God becoming man in this very humbling way, because God makes all things new. He doesn't do the same thing twice. And so we have that image and that promise of how he's going to come in the end. And so... Yeah, it'll, it'll be obvious. We don't know when, but we know we'll know when it's happening. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So we're talking in our group about just people who are very obsessed with the end times mm -hmm. and prepping for it. At this time, were people obsessed with the end times and prepping for the end times and all of that? Or when does that start becoming something that maybe Christians are obsessed with or different denominations of Christians? Yeah, so... Kind of a lot of the prophecies about the Son of Man in Daniel and Ezekiel, this kind of glorious Son of Man coming on the clouds and these very like theophany visions of God with all this power and angels that we often associate with the second coming. Some people associated them with the return of Elijah. A lot of people thought Elijah was going to come back because he was assumed into heaven on a chariot of fire. You can read about that in First or Second Kings. And so they thought that was going to at least be associated with um, Elijah coming back, which was going to pave the way for the Messiah. And there was all these prophecies about the new Elijah, which we know is John the Baptist, and he paves the way for Jesus. Um, so, but when the Christian church began, when Jesus, uh, you know, institutes the church, he resurrects from the dead and he ascends into heaven, the early church believed, based on certain interpretations of things that Jesus said, that the, his return was going to happen within their lifetime. So they were readily anticipating this. And a lot of it was misinterpretations about this kind of teaching. Jesus was saying, be ready, be ready for the coming of these, you know, the age and things like that. And they were interpreting that warnings about the coming of Rome to destroy Jerusalem were also warnings that the second coming was going to happen, that he was going to return. And so a lot of them started believing that that was going to happen, which is why this stuff didn't get written down for a couple decades, because people just expect, like, why bother? Like, Jesus is going to be back, like, tomorrow, probably, you know? So people stopped, like, getting jobs. They stopped getting married. They stopped, you know, it was just, Paul writes about this to people. And so uh, it was a real common expectation that this was, like, about to happen. But before that, I think it was more of associated with the coming of the Messiah. And then the idea of the Messiah was totally different, as we've talked about before. They thought it was going to be a, like a new King David, militaristic leader, overthrowing Rome, reinstituting the glorious kingdom of Israel. And that's obviously not what they got. So, yeah, which is interesting to kind of segue from, from your question. 
in how this passage is positioned. Because if you think about that, if you think about that's the version of the Messiah that even the disciples had been expecting their whole life, right? A Messiah to come and reinstitute the independent Jewish kingdom to overthrow all of their oppressors, to be the greatest power in the world once again. That was what everyone thought the Messiah was going to come and do. And he did that, but in a divine, supernaturally spiritual way by overcoming sin, not in the earthly way, militaristically, that they thought he was going to. But imagine, that's in their minds. And the events previous to this, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. They're welcoming him with palm branches. Like, all right, here's his grand entrance. All right, here we go. What does Jesus do? He goes to the temple. He flips over the tables of the money changers, cleanses the temple area. And as a disciple, you're like, oh, get ready. Okay, he's coming. Like, he's, you know, it's happening. It's happening. And then Jesus, then he gets questioned by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, and he quashes all of them. And then he questions them back, and they can't answer him. And they're like, oh, it's about to go down. Like, they're all ready for Jesus to reveal this like power and to bring about this glorious, into glorious fruition, this plan that they think is going to happen. And then we have this short passage about the widow's contribution right before this, denouncing wealth, denouncing corruption, one final climactic moment, but also a clue into the fact that Jesus is turning our perception upside down and glorifying, bringing glory to the small, the unexpected as he's been doing all through his ministry. But it happens right here at a climactic moment. And then, instead of saying, all right, the time is now, let's overthrow Rome, what does he say? It's all going to be destroyed. You can imagine why they're so panicked. When is this going to happen? What are the signs going to be? That is not what they were expecting. That is not what they were hoping for. Which is why it's so uncredible to think that the story of Jesus in any sense of the word was made up because nobody would have believed this had it not really happened. It would make no sense for Jesus to present himself as the way he did to be the Messiah if this wasn't really what historically happened because he went against every known expectation and conception of the Messiah. And all of the things that describe Jesus are in the Old Testament. They just weren't the passages people focused on. They focused on all the glorious hurrah King David passages about overthrowing oppressors. And so imagine that climactic moment Jesus comes, he basically like sticks it to all of the authority figures that people are dissatisfied with. And at that moment when he can act or do something, rile up the crowd, spark a revolution, take back Jerusalem for the Jewish people, instead he professes its destruction. How upside down that must have been. Also why it must have been, we sometimes think probably, you know, how did these people go on Palm Sunday from praising and welcoming Jesus to on Friday yelling, crucify him, crucify him? Well, a lot in those first two days and people's expectations probably got turned upside down because of stuff like this. And it's because people were focused and worried on the wrong things. Not on what's in here, not on our spiritual readiness, but on all those external things that had distracted them from the real focus. Other questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes? How do you deal with these difficult passages, if you like to interpret them liberally, that verse 18 and 19? Not a hair on your head will be destroyed. But it perseveres, you will secure your life. So if you take it literally, you know, it's not a pun. You know, no, it's just not impossible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how should we deal with these kinds of predictions or promises 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we know we can't necessarily take it literally because in verse 16, it says uh, you will be handed over by your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. So unless you die with great hair, I mean, I guess maybe that's the only way to literally interpret it is like, I guess no hair on my arm on my head was harmed. Maybe they just decapitated them or whatever. I don't know. But, you know, uh, it's probably not a good time to make a decapitation joke. But anyways, um, so obviously this, I mean, the, the, the better translation of that phrase, you will secure your lives, is you will gain your souls. That's a better literal translation of the, the Greek there. You will gain your souls. So in these passages about not a hair on your head will be harmed, you know, it relates to other passages like in Luke 12 where it says the hairs on your head are counted. Like God knows them, they are numbered. Like everything about you God knows and he has you. And in passages like Wisdom chapter 1 verse 13, like God did not make death, nor does he rejoice in the destruction of the living. Like God, he knows all these things about us. He does not want that destruction. And yet it is part of life because of sin. And so when he says not a hair on your head will be destroyed, that doesn't have to do with this life. It has to do with eternal life. It has to do with the preservation of our lives in the ways that matter most. Again, if we're so worried about the external, we're probably going to be really worried about our corporal being, our physical life. But Jesus is, again, drawing attention inward to our soul. And that eternal life is what he's assuring people. Focus on that. Because no matter the worry, no matter the darkness or persecution in this life, this life is not the, all there is to life. There is more. And so he's drawing their focus heavenward, eternityward. And that's, that's why I think these things that seem like they're contradictory are more about the spiritual preservation that he's promising if we stay faithful in those moments of difficulty. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Do you think there was a end times religious reaction to World War One or World War Two? Oh, yes, a thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, the Seventh-day Adventists, that was, their church started right around, or before that time, I think. I think, Charles, if I'm, I'm remembering my religious history, Charles Taze Russell was at the end of the 19th century, um, professing a lot of that. Or is he Jehovah's Witnesses? Now I'm getting confused. Okay, yeah, he's Jehovah's But a lot of those more uh, apocalyptic-oriented, the end is now. In fact, we, we just had a Jehovah's Witness come to our door, what was that, honey, like two or three weeks ago? And the guy, he was there with his daughter, and their, their, uh, their pitch, very nice guy, very nice guy. And I don't knock anyone who does this because we at Catholics don't do door-to-door stuff, and they do, and that they love us enough to do it. We should be doing it too, I think. So, but anyways, his sales pitch, which I thought was very interesting, was, you know, um, are you worried about where things are going in this world? And it was very like selling, trying to sell me on the darkness, like everything's going to the pits. And I could see where he was going, like this means that the end is coming. And when I see where that's going, I like to be a troll. And I was just like, I'm hopeful. Life is great. And, <laughs> and I didn't have, I fortunately didn't have a lot of time to talk to him. So he was like, oh, well, that's good. And I was like, yeah, and I believe in Jesus. And so thanks, brother, for doing this. And then I just, we kind of left it there because we had to go somewhere, I think. But, um, but it was interesting. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, you know, what a hard sell. Like, what an interesting way to present the gospel. You know, which, and it's not untrue necessarily because, you know, you can't understand how good the good news is if you don't understand how bad the bad news is. Right. But it just got me it was just got me curious about like why that way? You know, why like, you know, everything's going to the pits. You know, like do you notice? Like everything's terrible. It's like, well, everything's not terrible, you know? Like there's so much good in the world. Like we just tend to focus on all the bad, but but there is something to that, you know. So I just found that very interesting. But yeah, all throughout, especially modern human history, ever since a lot of the major um 
like big sufferings, large wars, the interconnectedness of people due to media, the printing press, like everything kind of post the 15th century into the Renaissance when people were more connected. We got more, you know, a sense of worldly knowledge and, con and uh, connectivity in many different ways. I think that's just become, we're becoming more and more aware over time of all the bad and good that is happening around the world. And then that just culminates in these big, massive, violent events. And people obviously thought, you know, and they calculated their dates didn't happen. And then World War II and Vietnam and Korea and, you know, uh, all these different things and the Cold War and all of these. I mean, there are still people who, you know, um, are very, very like adamant about calculating specific things from the visions of Fatima and saying like that actually means like this means even though that's private revelation, we can't interpret it that way. Um, but saying that like this means like the end times are coming, you know, in this generation or the next generation. So it's always um, interesting to me that every generation feels that they are so important that the end obviously has to happen during their lifetime. You know, just <laughs> I personally don't think so. So if that gives you any confidence, like I think we're good. You know, I think I think we're good. It'll happen right now. No. <laughs> One day, if that works, it's going to be so epic. We're going to be talking about it in heaven. You'll be like, remember when Matt called it like a second ahead? Yeah. So I always throw it in there just in case. You know. I used to do that to middle schoolers all the time. I started middle school youth ministry, and they'd be like, when's the Woken End? I'd be like, right now. Like, oh, guess I was wrong. You know, but they, the horror on their face was just worth every little bit of it. So anyway. Other questions? Yeah, Alyssa. Um, not really a question, but more just like, I guess, like a comment. Sure. But, um, what, what really stood out to me is where uh, it does say, you know, for the coming end, that um, it will lead you to giving your testimony. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really big thing, because that's kind of the thing that we're kind of supposed to be focusing on, right? Not mm -hmm. like all of the physical, of the worldly mess that will happen, but it's so that you can finally get to, you know, talk to God and be there with him and actually see him for the first time and be entered into his kingdom and be saved from, you know, um, basically being left in the flames of, mm -hmm. you know, the old world, essentially, yeah. you know, or at least I would call it the old world yeah. or like world 2.0 because it's yeah. kind of like the original, yeah. you know, but like, I just think that one was really interesting because it really makes you think in, in addition to where he says, because, you know, how we're all thinking, you know, well, you should be prepared with at least something, but it gives you reassurance when he says, I myself shall give you a wisdom in speaking that all your adversaries will be powerless to resist or refute. So it's mm -hmm. like just knowing and having that trust in him that he will basically help us get out, you know, um, is already like just a huge thing in general, but it's just, it really speaks to me because it's kind of like the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. that he's going to help us, you know, get through that transition between the ending of, you know, the physical world and going into that spiritual world yeah. in him in heaven. So <clears throat> it kind of just gives you, you know, hope you know, to not worry so much about when that does come, like yeah. how they how they work. So I just think that one is really um, 
hopeful and like encouraging. Yeah, no, I agree. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's another really good practical point for us to take from this. If you remember back to, you know, reading a while ago or earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, Luke says something similar to this. Um, you know, what is this? Nine chapters previous to this reading, he says, when they take you before synagogues, this is Jesus speaking, take you before synagogues and before rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what your defense will be or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you are to say. Yeah. And, and it made me think as you were sharing, like, what are the things that, that you and I worry about each day? And what are the things you and I worry about each day? And then put in comparison to that, how often is my main worry each day? There are souls in my life who are this close away from death or condemnation or sin, and I am in their life to prevent them from that. Like, is that one of my main worries? Like, am I going, am I evangelizing? Am I giving testimony? That's why Jesus draws the focus to that, not to the external signs. Like, don't worry about all that stuff. And that should be convicting for all of us, because I don't know about you, but that's not my number one worry every day. You know, my number one worry most days is not like, am I evangelizing enough? Are the people in my life that don't know Jesus, are they getting a little bit closer to Jesus? Like, am I doing enough? And what Jesus is saying here is that should be up there. That should be our main worry, a main concern each and every day. Otherwise, our faith is selfish. Our faith becomes about self-improvement and not about the body of Christ, right? And self-help, personal coaching, all this is huge now, right? You know, how can you hustle? How can you get ahead? How can you make the most out of this, you know, for yourself? But this idea of like, be, you know, we have a very vapid, shallow version of that in our culture. Just like, just tolerate everybody and accept everybody. When it comes to sacrificially laying down our own image, how we're going to be perceived, whether we're going to be judged, laying that down in order to reach out to those people who might be on the verge of destruction. There are people that our job, God placed you and I in their lives to be the catalyst for their salvation. And if we don't do that, potentially no one else will. That is a huge responsibility. It's a huge gift to be able to participate in that. But how often do we miss that because we're worried about other inconsequential things? And that's why he brings it to this. It will lead to your giving testimony. And the word for testimony in Greek is marturion, where we get the word martyr. People who are killed for their faith, people who are persecuted for their faith to the point of death. And that is why in that passage that I was quoting earlier, when Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching about Jesus, what they tell them is you need to stop doing this. You need to stop preaching about this. And Peter how timid or often putting his foot in his mouth Peter used to be. Peter stands up in boldness, in boldness, and this is what he tells the same group of people that condemned Jesus to crucifixion. He says this, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than God, you be the judges. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we've seen and heard. We're not going to stop. It's impossible. I cannot stop speaking about the things I've seen and heard about what Jesus has done in this world, in my life, and I will not. That is the priority. Everything else is secondary to that. 
as much as they may worry about my kids, their health, the world they're growing up in, how they're learning, how they're developing, how they're being educated, my number one worry has to be, am I getting them to heaven? And that same thing needs to apply to everyone around me. My worry may be about the workplace. Am I doing my job well? Are people judging me? Um, you know, am I getting my responsibilities done? Am I meeting my deadlines? But my number one worry about the workplace needs to be, are the people in my workplace on the path to heaven? Do they know Jesus? And no matter what persecution or obstacles come from that, trying to bring that up, trying to evangelize in a culture that is hostile to that and often antithetical to that, Jesus is warning us, be ready. Expect those things to happen. But that doesn't mean you're excused from the mission. That doesn't mean that the main thing can no longer be the main thing. Draw that worry, not only inward for yourself, but inward for your brothers and sisters. Because there are a lot of people in this world, you go on social media for five seconds and you'll see them, whose lives look perfect and their souls are a mess. And you and I are missionaries to go and save those people even though we too are a mess. That is why every time we go to Mass, the last, the word Mass comes from the last words of the Mass in Latin, ita misa est, which means go forth, you are sent. And so in some church campuses or in some church doors, you might see as you're leaving the sign that says, a sign that says you are now entering mission territory. In fact, some houses have those on, their, on the inside of their door, leaving the house. You are now entering mission territory. That is our focus. Not about all of the, when's the temple going to fall? When are these, you know, am I going to hold on to these really great, glorious things in my life? And yeah, those things are good, but you can't take them with you. The only thing you can take to heaven with you is your soul and hopefully a whole lot of other souls. That's the focus. Is that, does that match our worry? Does that match our to-do list? Does that match our priorities each and every day? Because if it doesn't, it's not just going to happen. It's not just going to fall on our lap. People aren't just going to suddenly be like, I saw you from across the football field and I was saved. No, like we need to have a conversation with them. We need to reach out. We need to go, you know? I mean, maybe if you're magnificent and you exude holiness like that. I don't think I do, you know? But that's not just going to happen, you know? It's not just going to happen. We need to actually put in the effort. So are we doing that? That is such a good thing to take from this passage. Our inward readiness and how it's compelling us to go be actively involved in the inward readiness of other people. There was a question before, Alyssa, back here. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about they didn't expect Jesus. They didn't expect him, but they came. Yeah. And there's that part in Scripture where he goes up in the synagogue he starts reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he's like, he says all this stuff. I came to captive street, came to heal the blind, yeah. you know, heal the sick. And the after that section, there's another section that says something like defeating enemies or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he didn't say that part. He left that part out. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I never. Yeah, I never realized that. Peter also talks later on about. Um, how we have to be ready to give our testimony. Yeah. Really talks about that too. Yeah, it's 1 Peter 3.15, I think. Always be ready to give an explanation for the reason for your hope. Yeah. Always be ready. Absolutely, yeah. I think maybe Jesus is also warning us not to get too attached to our personal temples because they're all going to go. Yeah. Yeah, and if we think we're attached to our personal temples, like, think about this temple. You know, this was in people's main connection to God. 
And this was a sign of, of God's favor and blessing to them, despite all of the junk that had happened to them historically. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes a little bit about the temple at this time. During this time, the temple was being restored and added to, to become Herod's temple, the king. So there's all these additions happening that took 46 years. It was completed in the year 63. And the facade of the temple, uh, Josephus reports that it was 150 feet tall and 150 feet wide, made of these white marble-like stones, some of which were 36 feet wide and a foot tall and over a foot and a half deep, huge stones. And they were gold-plated. And so when you came upon the city of Jerusalem, which was up on a hill and the sun was shining, it was a glaring beacon of glorious wealth and light. That was just glorious. To even, even if you were an oppressed Jewish person, the Roman Empire was oppressing you and taxing you, you could look up at that temple and be like, still, we got that. God is with us. We've got that. So imagine how hard it would have been to hear this, that it's all going to be gone. The only way that you have known as a chosen people of God up until this point that you have a connection to God, the sacrificial system where you can come to him and encounter him, that's all going to go away. That's a hard thing to accept. And yet the same is true in our life, right? Everything that is true about your life right now, everything that you have, everything that you possess, everything that describes you, everything on your resume, eventually all those things, either one by one or a big chunk at once, especially at the end of your life, will all be gone. And so, yes, we have the analogy of the temple of our own bodies and the temple of Jesus's body in this, the actual physical temple. But then there is the kind of structural temple that is our life, the kind of shack of idolatry that we build for ourselves that is this glorious beacon on a hill. This is how everyone sees me. This is how great my life is. These are all the things that describe who I am and what I have accomplished. And Jesus looks at that with love and he says, it's all going to come down. It's all going to come down. We're like, what? Like, how are we going to know? When's it going to happen? How can we be ready? Don't worry. Let it all come down because that's not what matters in here. Be ready to give your testimony because that's what matters most. That's the internal temple that you've been building all along. Do not let it go into disrepair. And there are so many other temples out there that need to be rebuilt. Think about the call of Jesus in San Damiano's church to St. Francis of Assisi. Rebuild my church. And he, like, you know, a nut, sorry, St. Francis, starts actually rebuilding a church. It's like, no, that's not what I meant, dude. Paraphrasing again. But, no, go out and rebuild the people of the church. We look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. You are fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself as the capstone. Through him, the whole structure is held together and grows into a temple sacred in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. You no longer need the temple, the external things, because we, the souls, the people of the church, are the new temple. It says elsewhere in scripture that you are the living stones of the church. That's what matters, the souls. And so every day, whatever your list of worries is, does your list of worries look the way that it would if Jesus wrote it for you? If he pinpointed the souls in your life that need you, 
that need to know the good news, that need to know your testimony, pinpointed the way in your life, your soul needs to be rebuilt into a glorious temple for the Lord. Those are the things that matter. So as we hear in the coming weeks, these very apocalyptic sounding, doom and gloom, destructive type of readings, recognize this is not to scare us. It's to encourage us to be alert and be ready and to focus on the right things because Jesus can come at any, mo- at any moment. And Jesus has come into our existence, but Jesus is also desiring to come to you each and every day and to come to people in your life through you who may only encounter him if you say yes. Your sole mission in life may be to evangelize that one person who's going to be the St. Thomas Aquinas or the St. Joan of Arc of this generation. We don't hear about a lot of their stories, but they had those people in their lives, the St. Ambroses, the St. Monicas, the people who prayed, who taught, who walked with, who accompanied, who invited, who focused on the right things. So as we hear this gospel proclaimed this Sunday, all the other things that we can draw from it, and there's so much more we didn't get to, but that I think we got to the things that matter most. You know, where is our focus? Where is our worry? Is it rightly placed and rightly ordered with the mission that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ to live out the good news, to let it affect and change who we are and how we live, and to go out into the world in a mission territory, and to remember we are, the only thing we can take to heaven is our soul, but we want to try and get as many souls there with us. So let's go get them. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this group and for this study. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, in the ways that it has challenged and convicted us tonight, that it would also encourage us and know that in any moment of darkness, difficulty, suffering, even death, loss, and grief, you are with us, that you have overcome death, that every hair on our head will be preserved in eternal life with you if we focus on the right things, if we are prepared to give testimony, if we do not lose sight of what matters most if we do not get distracted by the things that matter least. So we pray, Lord, help us to not have an earthly heart. Help us to have eyes that see as heaven sees, hearts that desire the things that you desire for us, and hearts that desire others to know you so that they may join us one day with you in heaven. Let our worries match our mission. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.